what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, you know what we haven't done for a long time? Dance together. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can arrange that. But the other thing we haven't done for a long time is new ads. Yeah, okay, let's do that. Yeah, let's do that. All right, we've got to start with the OG. We always start with the OG. Yeah. But he's good to start with. The odds are wiener. Yep. The wiener himself. Yep. The original sponsor of the show, Mm. the man who wanted to sponsor us from episode one and we told him to fuck off and then later we're like, hey, we'll take some of that money now, please. (laughs) Grumpiest but most lovable prick you could ever meet in your life. Yeah, it's the Einzer wiener. Yep. Jason Furman, Mm. Einswick Dog Quip. If you're in Australia, that's where you're getting your stuff. Yeah. Crazy if you don't get, pretty much, if you want dog stuff, get it from there. Have you seen that he hand makes a lot of his stuff as well? I've seen that. He tags me in his Instagram. I know. Me too. I see it. He's using his sewing machine. Yep playing his songs. He's really embracing social media these days. Yep. He used to have nothing at all, yep. a shit website, yep. but now, now he's got a working he's website and social media. I like watching him use his sewing machine. Next thing I know, he'll be making linen on a loom. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> hey, you know who else sponsors the show? Who? Your wife. She does. Yeah. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best dog suticles. <laughs> the best canine suticles. Premium grade. Yep. Human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yeah, it. Yeah, it's great shit. There's been hot demand for her to get this all over the world. Like mm-hmm. people are asking her from every country. She's looking into it at the moment. Okay. So that's going to happen. All right. I caught up with George Kittridge and saw the actual Rowdy Hound box. I know. Yeah. So I had a good talk with George actually about his process in getting this thing to market. Yep. It's a motherfucker. So you should, if you want one, you should get one because- George has put a lot of work into turning this dream into a reality. He and did so much R and D, didn't he? Oh, huge! And yeah. the the product is amazing. Yep, so and he's got, got training videos, everything showing he trains and supports people how to get the dog into it. Yep. how to make it safe. Yep. how to make the dog have a good experience from so it. So, if you ride a motorbike and you have a dog, you need the Rowdy Hound dog box on the back of that motorbike. Absolutely. Next, Fabian Romo. Yes, he's got a shop, Mojo. And you've seen it. I've been in there. You've I stole a tug. Yeah. I stole a tug. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd said as I was leaving, I'm taking this. Yep. So I guess it doesn't count. But yeah, Mojo Doggy. Did you pay for it? I mean. With your time. Yeah. So it's not really a theft. Yeah. Okay. Everything's fine. If you need dog gear in North America, that's where to get it. Mojo. Yeah. yeah. They've got everything. What he has, to be honest, is the best dog trainers shop. Yep. It's without a doubt the best shop that I've walked into where you can buy actual dog trainer gear. Yep. Yeah, high quality e-collars, mills, leashes, you know, all the things. Like proper tugs, like all the actual things that real dog trainers use. Mm. Mojo, get it there. We have a new sponsor also. We do. Yeah. Daniel Trapino. Trapino, yeah, that sounds about right. Daniel Trapino. It's Dog Club, South Australia. Yeah. What does he do there? It's kind of like a little hangout hood that he's created there. A little cultural hub. A little cultural hub in South Australia. So I think that's what Daniel was trying to go for, was to try and embrace and build the culture in South Australia. Because I will be honest, it's been sadly lacking for many, many years. Mm. Like not much really canine came out of South Australia. So I think it doesn't mean there aren't good dog trainers down there. There's some very good dog trainers and personalities down in South Australia, but they've never really – 
elevated it. And I think that's what Daniel wants to do. He really wants to push it out into the public forefront. Get in there, South Australians. Get into the Dog, dog Club, Club. SA. We must never forget Dan Croft. Dan Croft in Canada. What a good yeah. bloke he is. I love speaking to Dan as well. Yeah. Great facility. Great facility. Really emphasizing his puppy training programs. Mm-hmm. I just put an ad up today on Instagram showing a little Dobeman doing his little course running around. But that's what he really wants to emphasize on the critical period of development in young dogs and puppies. But it's not only that. I mean, it's all working breeds. As I've said before, as you've said before, very impressive to watch all of these dogs on BOSU balls, balancing and all of the breeds that other people usually are shying away from. He's got like a whole room full of them there. Great shop, great setup, great social media. I really like the Dan Croft setup. Our last person. Who? Barbara DeGroote. Oh, lovely Barbara. Yeah, the sugar mama. From the heart dog training. Yeah. She didn't really want to emphasize. She just said, here, have some cash. Yeah. So we just want to say thank you, Barbara. We do want to say thank you, Barbara. Thank you for supporting us. You're wonderful. We do love you. On with the show. Indeed. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Happy 40th birthday, sir. Thank you. How was it? It was like any other day. Yep. Um, just old now. It's kind of no biggie because I've been lying about being 40 for about six months. Really? Yeah. Like 39 is such an unbelievable age. <laughs> and so when you tell people you're 39, people are like, oh yeah, sure you are. Right? Like you try to avoid being 40. So I just started saying I was 40. And then recently, a couple of months ago, I was drunk and someone said something to me about like, oh, good luck tomorrow. And I was like... I'm a 40-year-old man. You think I can't handle, like, I've had, I've had like, six drinks. You think that this is going to be a problem for me? And that was when I was like, oh, okay, I've started telling people I'm 40, so it is what it is at this point. I love my 40s. Really? I really enjoyed my 40s. I didn't enjoy my 30s. Really? Really. Yeah. I had a bad time in my 30s. I really loved my 40s. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm enjoying my 50s as well. Yeah, mate. Uh, like, I put a post up the other day. Truth is, you know, things are great. I'm very, very lucky. I think I, you know, a few years ago really came to understand what's important in life and it's just people. Surround yourself with the right people and things go really well. That philosophy ebbs and flows a little bit, I believe. I think you go through quite a lot of cyclical events like that where you start contemplating the differences and the changes of life around you because some of those people you don't enjoy. Yeah, but that's what I mean. They're not the right people in that moment then. Well, yeah, that's true. And I mean, I was having a think about this a while ago in I see people talking about who my people are. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes your people are variable, like they'll ever flow, they're changing and out of your life. And one thing I came to realise quite some time ago is I've seen other friends of mine who have got their people in their life and they look like fun people. But sometimes you go out with those friends and you meet those people and you realize their people are Yeah. <laughs> they're just not they're yeah, not yeah. your people. And just because it looked like a fun arrangement when you saw your friend with them and because you know you've got a relationship with that person, those people aren't your people. They're mm. just not. Part of a philosophy that I've had in my life is even if you've got two or three really valuable people in your life, you're fucking rich. Yeah, totally. It's not about an accumulation of having to have everybody like you or be everybody's best friend or be in everybody's Christmas card list. It's a matter of having those people who would walk in front of a bus for you. Mm. And I could probably count on one hand the sort of people that would do that for me and probably likewise for me to them as well. 
it's not a mean-spirited thing. It just is what it is, you know. Like there are some people who are a lot closer to you and mean a lot more to you than other people. And mm. that has changed. That list has either lengthened or shortened over periods of my life. There have been people that I believed I could have counted on where when it came time to counting on them, they weren't there. That was surprising and shocking. But I think that's sometimes an unfair expectation that you put on other people sometimes. Like mm. sometimes you value people far more highly than what they're capable of delivering and it's not fair. It's probably just not fair. Until they offer it, it's just not fair. It's an expectation but not a realisation. Mm. So I've had a lot of those sort of changes. Essentially, I do agree with you that life is about the quality of people and the experiences that you have. Yeah, And you don't have to be surrounded in wealth and of course it makes life easy. I'm not trying to talk about the fox who couldn't reach the grapes. Yeah, yeah. What I'm trying to say is, let me explain it better. One day when Narelle and I went to Fiji, we went and looked at a, a village that was next door to the resort and the village is quite poor. It's next door to a multinational company, yeah, yeah. but the village right next door is third world. Yeah, I was watching some kids kicking around a water bottle that they'd wrapped up in tape and they were just kicking it around and they were having the best time of their life. You couldn't see them sitting around feeling sorry for themselves, saying life's not fair. They were playing soccer with this ball and they were laughing and cheering and the fathers were sitting on, you know, like on the ground watching their kids play and then occasionally getting up and chasing the kids around. The kids were squealing and having a good time with their dad. And I thought to myself, I've missed the point somewhere along the line here. yeah, yeah. I felt bad for them that they were kicking around this shitty little bit of water bottle that was wrapped up. So actually when I was in town, I bought a couple of soccer balls and I went and gave it to them. They just looked at me with this like- You missed the point. You missed the point. Yeah, yeah. They were happy to get them. They went and played soccer with them and then they came over and gave the balls back to me. And I said, no, 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 these are for you. And they said, oh, really? And I said, yeah. And I thought I was doing like a really big thing for them. But then the next day when I went there, they were still kicking the bottle around yeah, yeah, on the yeah. ground. They sold those balls. <laughs> probably. Probably. Yeah. It wasn't like they weren't happy to get them. Like they were lovely people, and but they were lovely anyway without the cost of having to give them anything. Mm. Like it didn't mean that they would be any more nicer to you because I gave them a soccer ball or anything like that. Like you go to the village there, you're a welcome guest there. Mm. Come around, you know, come and sit down in the house and talk. And I enjoyed some of the conversations I had with them about Fijian life and life in a village and how the hierarchy works with the chief and everything there and how they hunt the reef and fishing for them, what it looks like and so forth. And I, I learned a bunch of stuff, just dropping my guard and dropping my understanding of what life should be about through commercialism and looking mm. at their life. Anyway, I digress. This well, is your 40th uh, to birthday. The, to the point, I, I read this book that an army psychologist put me onto many, many years ago called Brain Rules by a guy called John Medina. Mm. Yeah, and I heard of John Medina. Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really good book. And probably eight years ago when Jane was pregnant with Rip, he also has a second book called Brain Rules for Babies. It's a really good guide. I, I've gifted that book to many, many people who are having kids and they're like, you know, got any advice? I'm like, read this book. It's yep. everything that you need to know. Mm. And in that, there's a whole piece on that where he explains that beyond your you know, basic living necessities, their money isn't a contributing factor to happiness. Mm. And so, of course, it is a giant contributing factor to happiness to a point. But then when you have that and you've, your basic living is taken care of, then it's just relationships with others is the key thing to, to, ha- to happiness. And so yep. I've always had that in mind. And that's really been a big thing with raising RIP is like I actually put a lot of work into – 
teaching him how to make friends. Like he's very good at making friends and we practiced and rehearsed that. Now he's probably naturally good at that. I enjoy the company of people. I enjoy talking to people. It's highly likely that he's the same. Mm. You know what I mean? So like there's a genetic component to it. But we put in a lot of work. We used to go to the park. Like, so when he was going to start school, the holidays before him actually starting school, there were only a couple of people from his daycare that were going to school. It's scary. You know, it's an overwhelming thing. He's like five years old. He's going to be going to a new world. He's got to make all new friends. And he was worried about it. So we used to go to the park and we would scope it out. We'd go to like the play area and we'd sit there and we'd have discussions about like, what's that kid doing? What is he into? How would you approach him? And he would actually go over and like make friends. And he was fucking good at it. Like Mm. he would, because it does relate to dog training. And I put up a big reel about it the other day. I think we're just sort of discussing it a little bit is like motivation is the key to cooperation. And when you really understand what someone else is motivated by now, whether that's a dog or a person or whatever, I think that once you understand that and then work within what they're interested in and their motivation towards, then it's really easy to get along with people. Mm. I think that when we have issues with people and when we have issues with dogs, it's often that our motivations are at cross purposes. And so we're incompatible together because we're motivated to either maybe towards the exact same thing. So now we're competitors, right? Rather than being able to help each other or we're not motivated. You know, I want to stop you from doing what you are motivated to do with no chance of doing it any further. So now we're at cross paths, right? Mm. So I think that's kind of the key to me. And that's what I have always kind of thought in my relationships with people is I really try to understand what motivates people. And I really try and get to the core of like, what are you in this for? And if your motivation is aligned with something that I can get on board with, then we can be good friends. Yeah. And if it's not, then that's cool. Like I'm, it's not my job to change who you are. And we just, you know, it's not like I then cut people out of my life, but I just go like, we're acquaintances. We're, we're, we're different. We're peripheral. You know, we're, we're acquaintances. We're people who know each other. I can call you my friend, but I'm not like investing time and effort into that person because mm. we're just not going to work out together. Yep. But as a result, by really sort of coming to understand, I think by really trying to understand people's motivation, then you can work with them towards things and you can be endeared to those people and you can get along really well. Mm. Um, So that's always been a huge part of my life. And especially to brag, because it does feel like it's worth bragging about is, you know, at the moment things are good. I'm really happy. And I think it has a lot to do with like a big hobby of mine outside of dogs is, as you know, like I'm pretty into meditation and awakening kind of stuff. Like I wouldn't say spirituality or religion, but I'm kind of into the idea that we're all one connected consciousness kind of thing and putting the work into that. I enjoy it. I'm happier, you know, and there's days where I've got the shits and my body's totally fucked. I mean, you were just talking for half an hour about ice ice baths baths (laughs) and, you know, which one I'm going to get because I need one and blah, blah, blah. There's ups and downs, but all in all, I think life's great. And why not? I have enough money. Like I'm not a rich person, not by any fucking stretch of the imagination, but I have uh, – money's not a concern. I was paid a lot while I was in the army and have an army pension from being broken. So like financially I'm secure. I'm not mm. rich, but I'm fine. So that's off the table for me. I don't have to worry about that. After that, it's like I only work to do the things that I enjoy doing because I have to make money, but I only do things that I enjoy doing and I just follow my own interests around. What's wild is how stupid hard I work for no reason. Like that, every now and again, I kind of think on that. I reflect on, you know, I have no spare time. And the time that I have, like, it's not spare time that I give to my kids. That's allocated time. That's not, they don't get my spare time. They get allocated time. And sometimes I think about how stupid it is, how hard I work, right? Like I'll be up at 4.30 in the morning to go out and meet Jazz to go tracking and then I'm home and then I'm doing stuff all day. You know, like I, I get home in time for the kids to wake up. 
I spend a couple of hours with them and then I'm working all day while they're at school and I'm trying to fit in and work out all the things that I'm trying to do. And sometimes I go like, why am I fucking doing this? And then I think, well, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> like I enjoy doing it. That's why I'm working so hard is because I, I enjoy my work. It doesn't really feel like work to me. Mm. So I'm blessed. I'm lucky. I'm happy to be 40. I wish my body didn't hurt so much. That's probably my only complaint, but that's life. We press on. We get in the ice bath in the morning and the sauna in the evening and we try and fucking keep the inflammation down. That's life. I was having a chat with the guys out in the training shed last Thursday and we were just talking about life in general. And I said, it's funny, sometimes I look in the mirror and I see this older person looking at me where I don't feel like that person. Your soul sort of stays a certain age, I believe, but the body betrays you. Yeah, you know, yeah. like sometimes you get up and, you know, I've got from hitting bags for years, I've got sore knuckles and mm-hmm. fingers where just pounding bags when you're 16 to 18 and you're unbreakable and you can do all those sort of things and you get up, you never feel it. Yeah. But you do it this age, like it all comes back. I've got two blown bursts in my shoulders, like they're completely blown out from yeah, fucking yeah. years working of dogs. working dogs. And I don't regret it. I have no regrets about yeah, it. Yeah. But I just wish it didn't hurt. I yeah, wish yeah. I wish in the mornings, you know, I wasn't rubbing Voltaren into my joints and sort of creaking, cracking yeah. and stuff like that. But what's the alternative? You know, like you play it safe and you live a boring and vanilla life and you never got any stories to tell when you get older. You just got the same thing over and over again. Oh, I'm an accountant. I do figures and (laughs) (laughs) we shit on accountants a lot, (laughs) don't we? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Thing is, I reckon like a lot of accountants love accounting. For us, like for me, that's one thing that I hate doing, right? It's yep. like I'm a one-man business. I don't have a bookkeeper. I have to do that shit myself. I have an accountant yep. who does my actual tax, but like I have to keep everything acquitted in zero and all of that shit myself. That is legitimate torture to me. I would rather be locked in a box and tortured than do that, but yeah. that's life. Everyone's got their place at the table. Yeah. It's, it's actually interesting when Scott, Dave, and I go for a ride on the weekends or whenever we can fit one in, Anytime we see bunches of guys coming down the road in Harleys now, nice shiny Harleys, we always go, there is an eastern suburb lawyer and his accountants team all all, all with him. It's not bad guys anymore, like one percenters. It's all rich eastern suburbs guys out with their shiny Harleys who can't ride for shit. Yeah, their midlife crisis bike. Their midlife crisis bike. That's always a laugh for us. (laughs) Anyway, we've got a topic. You want to talk dogs. Uh, Yeah, we should talk dogs. dogs. The topic that I wanted to raise today Well, it was inspired by a conversation I've been having with a colleague and friend, Georgia Jordan, who has done the NDTF. That's how I originally met her. She's come out here a bunch of times. She came and helped us on the PSA Mm -hmm. trial that we had. Lovely girl and really puts a lot of work into her dog. She's very passionate, but she lives out in bumfuck Idaho. Mm -hmm. So she's right out in the back sticks of New South Wales and she doesn't really have a lot of training options. So Every now and then she'll send me a video of her work and we just basically have a lot of backwards and forwards about what she wants to do. She's been getting into nose work. She's been actually doing quite well. She's got this lovely little lab that she found. She said to me, you know, every now and then I'd love to come down to PSA training and I'd love to watch and and see what you guys think about my lab. And I said, don't get your hopes up high. It's not a dog that you could do for it. And she said, well, what about just for learning and and so forth? And I said, look, we can see how we go. But in any instance, we need to evaluate whether this dog's got anything. So she said, look, I'm curious. I want to see how we go. So she's been teaching her dog how to bite a tug. The journey that she's been doing with has been quite interesting. I've been watching a lot of her videos that she's been sending through, critiquing her work. She's been going back with it and then she's been sending me an updated video and showing me what she's doing. So I sent her one that 
I did with Mando. Narelle and I went out in the shed. I had him back tied up and I was just showing the work that I do while you're not around. Mm -hmm. So it's no secret. All my dogs throughout the years, you know, like I'm either back tying them, somebody else is holding them and I'm doing all the preliminary work. So I'm teaching my dogs how to do a bit of grip work. They usually learn holding barks on me. They do all that sort of play prey stuff with me without the decoy being present. And then I get the decoy to spice things up a little bit. But one thing that I did notice, and this is where I wanted to have this conversation and the backwards and forwards with you, is that of late, I've been watching a lot of really skilled decoys. And this is not shitting on decoys because these people take the bites, they take the pain, they get the bruises, they get all of the knocks and the lumps. They do a lot of coaching. They do a lot of mentoring in the club. But one thing I've noticed is a lot of these people who are really skilled in working sleeves and suits and so forth, sometimes they don't do so well in the preliminary work. They don't do so well in teaching puppies. And I feel in my assessment of it, and there might be people listening to this thinking it's unfair, but it's what I'm going to say anyway, because it was something that we assessed in our own club in ADT. It was something I assessed in my club, master dog training when I had that years ago. And it's something that I've given people as feedback online when I've watched them do work, when they've said to me, what do you think? My answer to it is, I think some people get really lazy with it because they don't like it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. It's very cardiovascular intensive. It pushes you to a limit because you've got to do a lot of fucking running. You've got to do a lot of work. You've got to do a lot of zigzagging. You've got to do a lot of in and out with the dog. And it's also not sexy either. Suit work and sleeve work can be very sexy. People love it. You can do a bit of a pose with it. And especially now people have got cameras pointing at them. They Mm -hmm. spend more time lining up shots on the camera than they do (laughs) worrying about the work. But they don't do the preliminary work well. They get in the dog's face too much. They push the tug into them or they start flipping the dog a lot with the flirt pole or whatever they're doing, the chamois or the bit of rag that's at the end of the flirt pole. And I just noticed that I, I see them crowding the dog, they're pushing it at the dog, and they're trying to encourage the dog to do something where the dog is feeling very intimidated by the work that's going on in front of them. Some people might say, well, you know, like if the dog had any potential, then the dog would come out and do the work. I've seen dogs that didn't have potential at the start that have come out and been cracker dogs by the end of it Mm. because they had a very patient teacher. When I do see people do this work well, when I watch people with talent and skill in teaching puppies and juvenile dogs the art of tug and rag work, these dogs can go from very little interest or very little understanding, I should say, to an extremely good dog with a very impressive bite display at the end of their cycle into adulthood. Their progression rate is amazing because they've had a very good foundations coach. I don't even think I've got enough fingers and toes on me and all my staff about the amount of times we've talked about the importance of foundation. And I think that's where I want to go with this conversation and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I think we could... As you say, we could broaden this beyond just bite work so that we're including kind of everybody that listens. Sure. It's not just bite work for bite work. This is any time that people are playing with their dog. Yeah. You know, like we've just had Jay over here who encourages the importance of play. Mm-hmm. We've had a myriad of people that have come in and out and started flipping things around on the ground with dogs. I've seen people who do it with fly ball. I've seen people who do it with agility by rewards and so forth. The emphasis is – And I know that I've asked for your opinion, but I just want to elaborate on this a little bit further. 
This is about teaching dogs and juvenile puppies how to engage properly in the joy of play and developing good standards mm. in in that type of play from non-serious bite work into developing for sports and serious bite work. I think that, you know, you see the full spectrum. And I think one of the issues is there's limited access to very good instructional stuff on puppies. That's true. Like, and I think that the challenging part of that is there isn't a paint by numbers. Mm. You know, like I think once you get an adult dog and the desire to bite is there, for the most part, you can kind of like, it's still a lot of variability. There's still a lot of every dog is an individual but there is a glide path, mm. you know, and so there are steps you can follow. Now, whether we're just talking play or whether we're talking group development, all that kind of stuff. But like if it's group development, you can read Jerry's book and it, it is, it's a step-by-step. When the dog gets to be good, do it at this, go to this. Then, then the next thing is this, right? And you, you sort of chain along. But there isn't really much for that on puppies because I think every puppy is such an individual, right? Absolutely. And, and the drives come in at different points. Like take, for example, Hondo, like Ema's dog in the club, when he turned up, was a little driverless potato. He ate pretty well, but at eight weeks old, there was almost no interest in a rag or anything like that. Just kind of like looked at it like, what do I want that for? Like mm. I'm, just no interest. But at, I think it was 13 weeks, just comes online. Yep. Like, and it's all there, like actually doing it borderline, mm. borderline extreme level where we're now actually trying to sort of cap him a little bit and just sort of keep him a little bit more focused because the level of drive that he has is almost too much. It spills out of him in the work. Like he's having trouble controlling himself emotionally because he's so intense in the work. But see, that's the thing that decoys need to be aware of. They need to be aware of these things because dogs go through so many rapid changes yeah. when they're young. You know, little interest to extreme interest I've seen decoys or, and trainers at clubs where they have come on so intense and they think, oh, this is great, mm. and they cander to that. But the problem is is then they intensify it too much and they boil the puppy over mm. because their experience doesn't tell them, dial it back a little bit, let's make this a little bit fun because I can see that you're going over threshold and you're stressing too much now, where once again they haven't read the play well. They've looked at – what they think through their limitations in knowledge is how to actually go about engaging in the bite work with the dog, but they haven't realised what they've just done is incredibly stressful mm. and not fun. I think the emphasis that it's not my saying, it's a saying that I've heard before, but I love it and I, I utilise it regularly is that the purpose of any type of training is for the student to feel better at the end of the lesson than they did at the start of the lesson. If you can capture and utilize that in anything you're doing, you're successful as a teacher no matter what. That's what I try and emulate when I'm out with doing any type of training now is to try and make the dog or even my human students feel better about the end of the day than they did at the start of the day. Mm. They might be tired and they might think, oh, you know, that's a long session and we've been doing theory and practice and so forth. But generally speaking, now as opposed to earlier when I was a younger teacher, now I have people coming up to me saying, oh, that was a great day. Thanks. I really felt like the lights came on at the end of that. I'm tired, but I really felt that what we hashed out there made a lot more sense. I love seeing that with a dog too. Like I like to see that the dog will engage and have a bit of a problem, but then also overcome the problem because you have enough breadth in your training arsenal to be able to show the dog this is not going so well. I'm going to rechannel you here. I'm going to take you into this mode of thinking now. And then you can see the dog going, oh, I don't have to feel that way. Mm. I don't have to feel so intense and intimidated or 
aroused about what's going on there. I can still feel aroused, but I can feel better about my level of arousal rather than this channel that I was over here. I had a really interesting conversation many years ago. It was probably like 2018 or something with Bart. We were doing a gold school for the army. Yep. It was all just special forces dogs. And towards the end of one of the days, they brought out this dog who wasn't like on the course with a handler or anything. It was just one of the guys brought out a dog and was like, hey, Pat, can you? we just need another person to assist in the training. Can you do like a civil sort of uh, chase away on this dog? So he was going to post with the dog. Wanted me to put a little bit of pressure on the dog till the dog shows, you know, like some forward aggression and then run away and hide, have the dog pursue me and find me and bark. And then I would run away and put a little bit more pressure, you know, the sort of thing. And this would go over, you know, like 500 odd meters through the big training facility. The dog would continue chasing me, no equipment, keep the dog aggressive, give him this win. Like he was constantly pushing me away. Right. Mm. And the dog was under a year old, but sort of at the back end of that. So maybe like nine, 10 months old, something like that. So I do the session and it all goes fine. Like, and the dog, I, I should, before I talk about what Bart said to me afterwards, the dog is presently a military working dog, right? right. So like it all worked out. He, he did very well. He's an incredible dog actually, right? But the problem was he maybe was faking how incredible the dog he was. Because we got in the car and Bart says to me, he looks and he goes, ah, you pushed that dog right to the limit. And I was like, what do you mean? Because I felt like I hardly put any pressure on the dog, right? There was mostly sort of a lot of prey, actually, that the dog was just chasing me. And he's like, oh, and, and he realized that I didn't do it on purpose. He right. realized that I was just doing what I w- was going to do and yep. that it wasn't that I'd given the dog this incredible session. <laughs> it was that I had, but not with as much understanding as what he certainly had. I mean, it's Bart yep. Bellin for fuck's sake. And we had this long conversation. He said, you know, a dog like that is primed to be broken. He said that that little dog is a fucking liar. I'll never forget the words that he chose, right? Because I, I steal them all the time, say to other people. He's like, that dog is a liar. He's pretending he's a man when he's a boy. Mm. And he looks like a man because his body's come in, right? So like he's full grown. He'll thicken out a bit more, but he's a big dog. He's he's grown. He looks like an adult, but he is a baby. In mm. And and yeah, he bites big and he acts tough. He does all these things. But that dog is still nine months old in his head. Yep. He is an adolescent. Yep. He explained, he said, if you just put even just a tiny little bit more pressure on that dog, it would have been the end. He would have crumbled. The issue was, and as he sort of explained, and what I, I intuitively probably understood to an extent, but couldn't explain it. And I since have you know explained to a lot of people because I'm really careful with dogs that age. Even more so than with puppies. Because with puppies, it's obvious. Like for me, with puppies, it's very like, they're puppies. You just, Mm. like bite work with a puppy is just playing with it. Really, that's all it is. When you're developing a young dog, the difference between what I would do as a decoy and what I would just do with my own dog fucking around with it is very little. Except in one instance, the handler is going to be there holding the leash. And in the other, I might clip him to a back tire. He might be off leash and just playing around with me, right? Like it's almost the same thing. But people can still do that badly. Yeah, of course. And, and that's the issue. Like, you know what you're doing and you know well, what I, you want. To an extent. Yeah, but better than the average man. Yeah, yeah. You know? but, and but, that's that's the thing, mate. And this is the essence of our conversation is some people believe that they're killing it when they're killing it. Yeah, yeah. You know well, what I mean? But that's what I mean. So, like, with the puppy, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. But with an adolescent dog, especially when he looks like an adult – it's really easy to go, oh, well, you're ready for big boy stuff and Mm. put too much pressure on the dog. And as I sort of came to think about it is like all these things, like I always think of dogs as wet concrete. 
your job as you're raising that young dog is to keep that wet concrete in the shape that you want it. That's all you have to do because it is slowly setting. And all you have to do is just keep forming it into whatever shape it is that you want it to be. Mm. And eventually sort of come 18 months, two years, whatever it is, depending on the bloodline and all these sorts of different things, that concrete sets and then it is what it is. And the problem is what you see and what like I've been guilty of and not in a way that I've, I'd say that I've ever wrecked a dog, but I've certainly dragged the trowel through the wet concrete and gone, oh, fuck, like I've just ripped open a big gap there. Mm. And and by accident, because I didn't realize the concrete was that wet and now I'm going to, instead of getting to just keep it the same and like nicely mold it the way that I want, now I have to put in the work into fixing that issue that I just created. Yeah. Like I just dragged that trowel through there and there's a gouge that I have to now re-smooth over. Mm. And the problem with that, you know, the issue with a lot of like nerve issues in young dogs, in my opinion anyway, and this relates to sort of any dogs, it doesn't matter whether they're bite work or pets or whatever. The issue with, I think, little nerve problems in dogs is that it's a lot like, uh, you know, as I was explaining, the spider that's been chasing you for the, your entire life and is going to kill you when it bites you, but it's not allowed to bite you until you look at it. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so that's the problem with when people often find a nerve issue in young dogs, they start trying to fix it. Mm. And very often it would just go away by itself. But the process of trying to fix it usually is what keeps tearing it open, mm. right? And I think that uh, often just ignoring it is is enough. Like just put that dog away. And it's not ignoring it, but it's just not addressing it directly. Just work the dog through it. And if the dog's got a bit of a funny issue with the stick, like we see this all the time when we're developing dogs, a dog will just turn up one week and have a weird issue with the stick. And that like with most dogs, that happens at some point for a week. Yep. You know what I mean? And mm. if I see like either the young dog that I'm developing has some issue with the stick. I just drop the stick right there and I just don't use it in that session. And then I probably don't use it in the next session. And then the session after that, I'll bring the stick out and see how they feel. And in almost every instance, there's no issue with the stick that third time around when I bring it back in. Yep. But if I started trying to develop with the stick in that moment, chances are the dog starts going, Hey, that you're putting a lot of work into that. Like you are actively trying to counter condition me to this. Mm. And of course, like if I do it correctly, it will work. That's how counter conditioning works. Right. Like if I, but the difference between a perfect rep where you bring the dog to the cusp of having an issue and then he, he shows you strength and you turn off the issue and he overcomes it and he feels victorious. Well, he still had to overcome it to mm. begin with, right? And there's the risk of you just him not overcoming it, that you put this tiny little bit of pressure on. It could be as simple as you're rattling the stick while the dog is, you know, maybe the dog's got the sleeve in its mouth and you're beh I've got the stick behind me at full arm's length and I'm rattling it. And as soon as the dog re counters, regrips, shows me some strength, I'm going to stop rattling it. But he might not. He might not counter. He might not regrip. And if I just keep rattling it, that tiny little bit of pressure that I only meant to be just like an inoculation. You went over threshold. Two minutes later, that's a lot of pressure. Yeah. As I'm still standing there rattling the thing going, fuck, why mm. aren't you regrouping? You know what I mean? So that's why I think young dogs are especially prime, but like puppies for sure, but adolescent dogs are especially dangerous to work because mm. at that point they start showing you strength that they don't really have. They're experimenting with behaviors and you have to be really careful and make sure that those experiments that they show you are successful into the things that you want. So when yeah. a dog shows you some strength, you overreact. That's what, you know, when I'm training people out there, you, you see me all the time telling people overreact. Yeah. You collapse, you feign, you make the dog look like it hurt you when yeah. it really didn't. It's theater. It's acting and 
Uh, yeah, it is. It's a pantomime. It's theatre. You yeah. have to convince yep. the dog you are something that you, you're you not sure whether you are and you have to go overboard to show the dog, no, you're definitely what you think you are. I remember you- Boyd telling me years ago when we were training, which I laughed at at the time, but I came to believe him over the years, is the best dog trainers in the world are the biggest clowns. Oh, totally. Mm. That's one of the issues that you always find with groups, especially if you get, say, like cops or army or whatever together and it is a group of tough men. It's a testosterone camp. Yeah, it can yeah. be really tricky to sort of convince people to play the fool mm. and, you know, engage with their dog in that way. But usually, and this is, you know, this kind of relates to, you remember when uh, Spolsky was on Huberman, he was talking about testosterone. And yes. he's like, testosterone doesn't make people aggressive. What it does it amplifies is, it. Well, no, it increases um, competitive behaviors. Mm. And if aggression is the, the behavior that will win the competition, then it will increase aggression. But the example he gives at the time is like, if you're at a fundraiser and the competitive behavior is spending the most money at an auction, a testosterone will increase the level of money people spend, not the aggression with which they will interact with each other. Mm. It just amplifies, like testosterone just amplifies what you already are in that competition. It will make you better at that one thing. And so- What usually happens, what I find, is once you get one person who will play really well with the dog and let go and actually sort of engages and plays the fool and yells and claps and does all the things that that dog needs him to do and to get the success that he needs, then everybody else does it. Because now it's a competition of who can do bad better, (laughs) right? Because it's who's a tougher guy to start with, but then when that leads to success, it's like, oh, well, all this giant amount of testosterone that I have drives me for competition, and if that's the successful behavior in the competition, then that's what I'll display more of, Mm. and I'll out be the fool to you. I'll out clown you. But if no one does it, then it's hard. And what I find as well is because I'm not an insider to the group, it doesn't matter how good I do it. You know, because I'm not one of them. Mm. I'm there with the teacher. So I will leave at the end of the day and they'll go to the locker room and be like, what a dickhead, right? Like (laughs) see the way that he was acting like a clown. But it only takes one of them to get in on it and then they're all competitively acting like a clown. I've always embraced that in a clown. I've always I love it. Yeah, me too. I, I love having fun and I love joking and I love being goofy. It wasn't difficult for me at the club to do it. You know, like it was something that I enjoyed doing was making noise and falling over and letting the dogs jump all over you and stuff like that. It was just fun stuff. Mm. And you're right. There's a lot of times where I've watched groups of people not being able to do that because they're they're kind of thinking, oh, I can't do that. Mm. You know, that is uncool to be seen doing those type of things. And that, my friend, is why you'll never be good at training dogs because it's not about machoism or stoicism or looking great or anything like that. It's about – remembering it's not about you, it's about your student. And if you can't embrace that, you're a terrible teacher. And you will remain to be until you let go. Like you have to let it go. You just let it happen and let it go. And then the flow starts to become, and that's, you know, like we've talked about flow state a few times. That's when you and the dog start flowing together. Like together you start growing each other up. Like one props the other and you start ratcheting each other up and up and up. And it's a beautiful harmonious thing when it really starts to take form. Do you remember that Mike Tyson saying, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face? That's the one. Yes. That is a fantastic statement. And I think of that quite fondly. And it brought me back to my first boxing coach, a guy called Brian Levere. When I was 16 years old and I used to go down to his gym in Bayswater with my mate. And Brian used to he had a really good way of sussing you out whether you were going to be a good fighter or not. So there was a guy there that 
I thought was amazing. You know, like I just looked at him, I was a kid and he was probably 19 or something like that. And he was flashy, he had lots of form. He was, you know, like he'd smash the bags, hit the pads and everything like that. And uh, I was sitting with Brian one night. I'd got to know Brian and I, I was just being his little gopher at the time. And I said, oh, Leno's pretty good, isn't he? And he said, we'll see. And I said, why do you say that? What he said was, all that glitters isn't gold. Mm. And I said, right, (laughs) so can you tell me a little bit more about that? And he said, all I want you to do is watch him over the next couple of weeks because now the pressure is on. And he said, now we will find out if Leno is a good fighter or not. And over the next couple of weeks, Brian started putting a little bit of incremental hurts on him. And the first time Leno got hurt, I saw it and I never knew what to look for but I saw it through Brian's eyes because he was coaching me what to look for. And I saw this guy fold. And right then and then he decided he didn't want to be a boxer because being punched in the face hurts. And he was good at punching. He was really good at punching, but until he got punched back, and it wasn't that Brian was trying to hurt him. He was just trying to figure out, are you a career boxer or are you a guy that's going to turn up and put – two bucks in the tin and just go and punch bags in the corner. Mm. I remember him sitting down the back and, you know, like Brian pushed everyone away and Leno and Brian were down the back. And, you know, I could see this a bit of a conflicted conversation happening. But he had such a good way with him where he sat him and he put his hand on his shoulder and I heard him at a distance saying, son, I'm here for you, not against you. I need you to realise you've got the heart. You just haven't got the head. Mm. And he said, and unfortunately, this isn't going to be the job for you. Leno left for quite a while and didn't see him for ages. Then he came back and he goes, is it cool if I come down here and just train? He said, of course, you're one of my boys. You were always welcome down here. You'll always be one of my boys. And he said, let's focus on the fitness, huh? So he became part of the fitness and, you know, like he used to go in and help spar with the head work on, but he realized and Brian saw it in him at the start, like Bart saw in that dog where you were doing mm. the work, that this person was never meant to be a career fighter. He mm. had no place in being a boxer because he would have got fucked up. And Brian cared more about that than he did in pushing him into the ring and getting him minced up. The reason I'm bringing up this story is because, A, you reminded me of it, and B, it made me think about good coaches and what they see in the youth and mm-hmm. how they develop them properly and they understand. These are things that I've had to have similar conversations with people over time who don't want to do sports with the dog. They want to go out and work the streets with the dog. And I've had to have these conversations with them and say, this dog will run. Like this dog will run under your feet and pull you over trying to escape from the issue. They're not going to stick around. Just because it's your mate and you love this dog, it's not a suitable working dog. It's a hindrance to you. And I remember working on a site with a guy years ago and, you know, some of the jobs that we were doing back then, some of them were very passive, you know, like it was just crowd control and others were shitty jobs where it became very dangerous very quickly. And I remember working on site with this guy once and he was one of the guys I advised and he didn't he wasn't working for me it wasn't my company i was working i was subcontracting to another company and he turned up on site with this dog and he looked at me and he goes oh yeah well i'm still working mate and i said you're not working in my team and mm. he said why and i said because i know that dog man and i know you and i know both of you will fold when the pressure comes on and i said and this is a place where it becomes dangerous quickly and you're not welcome to work in my team So I allocated him to another team and sure enough, an issue happened and his dog basically just pulled off the lead and ran off, Mm. disappeared into the night. 
I didn't mock him over it. I wasn't happy about it. If anything, I was unhappy that he was there. And even further, I was more unhappy that I was right about the situation and it happened and it put him and the other team at risk because he was spending the rest of the night running around the streets looking for his dog when really they needed the backup to prevent the issue which was occurring with the problem in crowd control. So it's not a mean-spirited thing when good decoys and good teachers are telling you this. It's actually for your benefit. And this actually comes through the puppy juvenile thing because I'd seen this dog as a puppy. The other problem there was where I saw the inconsistencies in training and commitment in bringing that dog down. He may have been okay if he'd been introduced to it right, if the guy hadn't trained with this person and then with this person. But what I really believe is that dog had a lot of pressure put on him early on. Mm. He had a lot of very poor training because I knew the other groups of trainers that he was going to. It doesn't always mean it's always going to pay off. Some dogs just aren't suitable like that boy Leno. The majority of dogs aren't suitable. That's exactly right. Like that boy Leno that I was talking about and how Brian saw that he wasn't suitable for all the right reasons, he kept him out of it. He basically said to him, this is not something for you. At the introduction of this, we're talking about fitting into tribes, your people and other people's people and incompatibility sometimes. There have been times where myself or other colleagues, and I'm sure you've had this as well, even being in special forces in the army, where you find that you're matched with incompatibilities, like people who just aren't suitable for the role that they're in. And suddenly you find yourself in a dangerous situation because the team that you know very well are, are very competent together. They will work and they will stay and they won't run and they will advance together and they know how to operate and communicate with each other. You've kind of like synchronized. You know what to do. But when you get one of these people that come in because they've had very poor training, they have a image of themselves or a belief of themselves, which is far greater than what their actual capabilities are, they become an an enormous and dangerous liability to you. And I think we got a little bit far off the track from where we're going with puppies, (laughs) but this happens a lot of the time because of the poor foundation work. Yeah. Before we go back to puppies, I want to just say, I like- those are the worst conversations I think I've ever had in my life. I've had a few of them. Mm. I've had them to people about their dog and I got stuck in a really horrible position one time. I was in the States. It was a long time ago. It was like 2016. And this guy, was, he was a cop and he was talking about how his dog, he'd called off his dog. He gave this uh, scenario where he'd popped the dog out of the, the car, sent it to someone. The guy had given up on the way, like he had frozen and put down his weapon or whatever. I can't remember the exact situation, but he gave up and the guy called off his dog. And he was kind of bragging about how he had successfully done it. And uh, he said the dog didn't recall, but the dog didn't bite the guy. He kind of just went into like a bark around the guy. And I was like, oh, okay. Like that poses some in further investigation. Yeah. Mm. And then the moment I laid off, I asked him, do you, have, you ever have any live bites? He said, not like this relatively new handler, new dog. And that was their only time that he'd ever sent the dog. He'd got the dog out, barked at people and all the things. And it had successful fines tracking and all these kind of stuff. But that's the only time it had been told to engage and it hadn't because he had told it not to. Mm. The moment I laid eyes on the dog, I was like, oh, like I knew straight away. I was like, that dog didn't call off. That dog just didn't engage. And often like failed engagements is 
very often a training error. Like yep. more often than not is that people have created equipment fixations and pr like presentation issues or targeting problems. There's a million reasons why a really good dog, like a proper killer would not bite someone yep. given the opportunity. They to don't understand it. They yeah, don't the context understand. Is wrong. Yeah. Like some dogs come out of the box ready to rock like that. The good bloodlines, they're like that. But we've discussed in the past, I think that there's maybe 20% of dogs or, or I don't know the numbers, but there's a, bandwidth of dogs at the top that you can't fuck up and they're going to turn out whatever it is you want to do with those dogs. They're going to be that in spite of your training, yep. not because of your training. Mm. Right. And they're the best dogs. They're the ones that everybody's trying to find. They're but the you can still reduce their ceiling. Yeah. Mm. But there's, and then at the bottom, there's a band of dogs who are never going to make it no matter what. Mm. But the overwhelming majority of dogs, I think sit in the middle where training is going to be the deciding factor on this, right? Like you can influence them one way or another and, and they're going to need the help and they can still be at the end point indistinguishable from one of those dogs that's in the top bandwidth, but they were in the middle and they just had the right development along the way. Right. But other dogs are just never going to do it no matter what. And it doesn't matter what we're talking about, whether it is bite work, you know, sports, real work on the street, whether it's detection, whether it's agility, you know, it doesn't matter. That same formula exists no matter mm. what it is. Mm. Even if it's want to be a couch dog at home, right? Like that exists no matter what you want from the dog. Yep. But like that conversation, that's the first time I ever had it with someone who like I'd only just met and he didn't know me. And I was like, I, I actually sort of sought counsel from a couple of the instructors at the thing. And I was like, hey, what are you guys going to do about this? And they're like, what do you mean? What are we going to do about it? And I was like, this guy's dog's a fucking cur. Like this is not, and this is at a certification. And they didn't read it. They, and so I was like, fuck, I'm the only one here that, that Can gets see this. It. Yeah. And I was looking for someone who was senior to me and was there and could see what I, like senior in having that conversation, right? Because there was no one there that could read it like I could. And there was no one that could give me the advice that I needed. And I had to have the talk with this guy and he kind of didn't want to hear it. Like he just was like, no, you're wrong. And I was like, hey man, like I have nothing to sell you. Mm -hmm. Like I, there's nothing in this for me. I'm on a plane out of here in four days I'm just telling you what I see. You do with it what you will. I am only interested in you and your safety on the street. And as well as like, to an extent, the dog, you know, not being put in a situation where he's going to be overwhelmed and, and completely fucked up. But like that conversation, I've had that plenty of times since, but that was the first time I've ever like that. It was very like uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable when the person that you're having the conversation with just doesn't buy it. Yeah. And they don't understand, as you said, it's coming from a wonderful place. Like it's coming from a place of care and concern for their well-being and the dogs. Yeah. But uh, that, that's such a hard conversation to have because sometimes when you have that conversation, all you do is throw fuel on the fire for people who are like, I'll show, I'll prove you wrong. And you're like, no, man, what you're going to do is torture this dog for the next two years. Yep. Trying to force it to do something that it doesn't want to do. Exactly right. And then in two years, you're going to like realize that you've been pushing shit uphill and it's not going to work and you're going to hate yourself and you're going to resent the, you, you, it'd be too late for you and the dog's relationship because you'll now fucking hate and resent the dog because mm. of, it's not doing the things that you've been trying to get to do for two years. And you're going to make me a villain in your head through all of this because I said that it couldn't do it and you're going to think that I refuse to work the dog. Or what, you know, very often happens is that then people will say, oh, the decoy fucked up, fucked him up when he was young and like all the issues are because of what happened to him when he was young. When in reality, the decoy, like the session that went terribly 
was going to go terribly no matter what the decoy did. And then the decoy then says, hey, it's not going to work out. Now, I've been in that situation with many people. There's been people that fucking send videos of me around to people saying that I tried to fuck up their dog. And when I saw the video, I was like, hey, there was no other way that could go. Like, Mm, that's a scared dog. And I gave the dog the best possible experience I could. And if you want to show that video, you show it to anyone you like. Because the way that session was going to go no matter who did that session, right? But so that's one of the things. Like, now... That conversation is really hard to have. You've got to frame that conversation to people. And more often than not, I try and, uh, you know, it really depends on the person. I really try and not have that conversation. I want them to realize it themselves. And I usually say to people, you know, we just keep working at it. We just keep working. We'll see what comes out. And usually we want them to sort of realize like, oh, this isn't, you know, this isn't going to go the way. And we go, yeah, probably not. (laughs) Because, but then there's capacity issues. Like I don't, like if it's for real work, I'd never want to, yeah, more often than not, though, I think people who work the streets with their dog more often than not are pretty open to it when you're like, hey, man, this dog isn't going to do what you need him to do to keep you safe. He, you can love him as much as you want. He can sleep on the bed, but you need another dog that's going to live in the kennel. Exactly right. You need, mm. you need another dog that's going to do the job and you don't need – like you need a type of dog that is okay with you loving this dog and mm. him just being the work dog. Cause there's plenty of dogs that do that. There's plenty of dogs that are like, no, I want to live in the kennel, come out and fuck people up and then get put back in the kennel. Yep. Right. There are dogs that are happy that way. They are. I need to intervene there because listening to you discussing that there is one person and it's usually a trainer who's even worse. And I don't even call them trainers. I call them placators because what they do is that person, that disgruntled person will go to one of these placators and then they will build this dog up on House of Cards and the dog is fucking shithouse. And I don't mean that the dog is a a terrible dog. I just mean the training is the scaffolding that they build around the dog. It's a fucking show. It's an absolute facade. And when they bring the dog back, they'll sort of poke their tongue at you and they'll give you the, you know, look, look at my dog now. I've had one of these guys, I said, mate, I'm telling you now, that is all plastic. All that is is sticky tape and bubble gum, and that dog will come apart the minute any pressure goes on it. The fact that you showed up here to try and stick it in my ass over this dog who is incapable, I said that trainer who you went to needs a good kick up the ass. Yeah, well, they've taken your money. Exactly. And they've thrown the gauntlet down for me and said, well, I want you to test the dog down. I said, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because I know that your dog will fold. And they've gone, no, you don't want to do it because you know that somebody else has trained my dog to a better standard and you couldn't do it. And I said, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to get my friend to do it because I'm telling you, you'll blame me and you'll say that I've used some trickery to do it, but I'm going to get my friend to do a very reasonable test with your dog and you can abort any time. You can stop any time, but I'm going to get my colleague to do it and I'm going to stand here with my arms folded and I'm going to watch and take notes. That's all I'm going to do. Mm. And this is exactly what we're going to do. And I said, before I do it with your dog, I'm going to get my colleague to do it with three other dogs so you can see the test going down and you can see and we're going to film it. You can see it happening. You can see it unfolding and you can see that you aren't a victim of us putting pressure on you or doing anything untoward that any of these dogs that are less capable or not less capable, that are a lesser standard, younger than your dog, but I'm going to show you somebody else doing it so you can see what I'm talking about it. So we did it and my colleague showed them and then they still wouldn't believe it even after their dog completely fucked up and, and flipped out. Yeah, that <laughs> that's the worst type of person and placator that can come together 
because there's just no convincing them, no convincing them that you're not the bad guy and you haven't done the wrong thing. Yeah. And and now it's worse for trainers because of social media and these shitbag horrendous people who get on and spread lies and mistruths and misinformation over those sort of things because they're weak and of character themselves and they have no understanding of what's actually going on. And yet when good people who have actually at one stage did care about them, did care about their dog and did care about the combination of all of it coming together, have now given up on them and saying, I'm done with this person. Yeah. Terribly yeah. sad. Well, it's very frustrating when people put their dog in positions to fail like that. Yeah, horrible. And, and like there's, so- the problem is there's varying degrees of that. Like, you know, last year when I was going to do the Mondio stuff, when I went out and trained with the guys, uh, Dimmy was very easily able to fend Remy, right? Because he doesn't know how to deal with a Mondio style barrage. He's never seen it. It doesn't happen in PSA. And he, cause like, he's not a, a really aggressive dog. He was like, Hey, what's happening here? He got very confused and didn't bite after me having tell him to, yep. but it wasn't a nerve issue. So like, that's one of the things is that sometimes like that's a training issue and it lies on me. And it's because I just was like, Oh, well, we'll go to Mondio. And I put him in over his head and he just got confused and didn't engage because he didn't know what to do. But it's not nerves, right? Like he just was like, uh, this is probably from having so much control work also mm. like played a role in it. But so the problem is that is really different from putting in your position in your dog in a position to get run. Like that's a whole bit, whole nother sort of thing. And th- it, it can look similar. Yeah. I think you were there when we did that trial in the US and I ran that dog. And I apologized to the lady afterwards. I was like, hey, fuck, I'm really sorry that happened. Let me help with the dog. And she's like, oh, it's okay. It's second time. I was like, what? Why didn't you tell me? Well, what are you here for? Mm. If the dog got run at another trial and got run again in the exact same scenario, like it's a PDC, it doesn't change. It fucking is what it is. Yeah. Like how have you not tested this and how have you not built the dog to this? Why are we finding out? Like, and how did this happen a second time? It's fair enough if it happens one time to go, shit, I didn't know that was an issue. But to be, when you say to me, like, oh, it's okay, it's happened before, mm. I'm like, fucking hell, like, you shouldn't have made me do that. Like, I can't stop what I have to do. It's the test. You put the dog into the test. I'm not going to give your dog a lesser version. Yeah. It is what it is, but you shouldn't have. Then you've compromised yourself as a. Well, and the dog, like, now he's totally fucked. This is never going to go well. Yeah. Right? Like, it was infuriating for me when that happened. Mm. But so I wanted to explain as well. But then also, like, I've had that same conversation with people. I spoke about it on the podcast one time before, like, you know, with SF selection stuff, where you have to say to people, like, hey, it's not going to work out. And that can be a really – some people go, yeah, I kind of was picking that up. And other people want to fight over it, you know, and they want to argue. And it's like, hey, the fact that we're having this conversation is evidence that it's not going to work out, mm. you know. The only time I've ever not enjoyed one of those conversations but where it was like – I was nearly in a fight with a guy one time. I knew who he was and he was a big, strong dude, right, and could definitely fight. And I was like, hey, man, put your hands back in your pockets. So I was like, we're not fighting. And he's like burring up to me. And I was like, mate, that's, this isn't how it's going to go. Don't embarrass yourself. And he's like really trying to physically intimidate me. And he could easily physically have it over me. But I was like, mate, I know who you are. And he's like, looks at me confused. <laughs> I was like, you'll stop. I was like, you'll probably put a decent beating on me. For sure, you'll hurt me badly, but I will never fucking stop. Mm. You will have to kill me before I stop. And you will stop the moment I chin you. Like the moment I even pinch you, you will stop because you're a pussy. And the dude, like he knew and you could see him. And I was like, so we're not fighting. I was like, like, I don't, we're not doing this. This is a long time ago. And I was still in the air. I was like, 
dude, we're not fighting. This is not, this is not becoming a physical altercation. This is ridiculous because it's only going to result in me getting a beating from you and then you crying on the floor after I get one hit on you. Like mm. that's how this is going to play out for sure. Why endure this together? Anyway, so that's my stories on that. Back to puppies. <laughs> Uh, where did we get to? Tease <laughs> <laughs> we go on some fucking tangents. We do. Well, it ties in because what we've just discussed, all of these elements and all these issues that we've raised generally come from these foundations not being set properly. And this is why I'm actually being very critical of it at the moment when I'm looking at work and I'm thinking there are times where I think the handler hasn't got any chance because the decoy or the trainer that's doing the work doesn't know what they're doing as well. And again, it doesn't relate just to bite work. It's not just about that at all. One of the things where I was watching something online was the trainer and the handler, the trainer was actually like whipping the dog in the face with the item, Mm. believing that that was going to generate more drive from the dog. You know, like everybody was laughing, having a good time, but the dog wasn't. The dog was having a good time at all. The dog was actually having a terrible time from it because what should have presented itself to the entire party was if the dog's not going to get it when it's super fun, why is it going to get it now when you're starting to hurt the dog or intimidate the dog in the Mm. training platform? So- Well, they're trying to tap into aggression, right? They are, but they're just doing a very poor job of it because instead of doing that, they're creating avoidance through what they're doing. That brings me on to another story, an interesting one that happened years ago. I did a lot of work in the early days when Boyd taught me a lot of escape avoidance work and we were working dogs through avoidance and how to teach the dog how to feel powerful and victorious through it, even when the dog is in in a lot of doubt and a lot of conflict within itself. And I remember doing one of these training sessions years ago where I had a dog, we worked with the dog tied into a corner and a group of people were actually watching at the time I was the decoy and I got one of my handlers to handle the dog and he was making sure the dog couldn't escape. So we were working the dog to try and teach the dog to bite the sleeve and hold the sleeve. During a couple of the exercises, the dog was grabbing the sleeve. We were letting the dog win. We were doing it very incremental. One of the people in the crowd were watching me. It was a young lady and she came up and said, I don't understand what I'm saying here. In fact, I'm in two minds whether this is cruel or not. And she said, why do you want the dog and why are you insistent on getting the dog to bite a sleeve? And I said, it's not about biting the sleeve. It's teaching the dog how to bite. I said, the problem with this dog, as I said, he's a working security dog. And I was doing the same thing that Brian was doing. I was testing this dog to find out, does he have the metal to stay in the job or should he be sacked? The dog would bite you. There was no two ways about whether this dog would bite you or not. But the problem with this dog is he'd bite you, he'd let go, he'd run, he'd come back and he'd bite you somewhere else, you know, and in those days, excessive force was really something that the courts would deem. It, it was a big problem in any type of bite work or street law enforcement type of work for private companies. So what we wanted to determine was, will this dog be able to learn how to actually bite and hang on and stay in the fight? The good news was the dog was capable of doing it. We were able to coach the dog that stay in the fight, don't run away. That's not where the victory is. Victory only comes from staying here. Otherwise, life gets fucked up for you if you let go and try and run away. Because we were patient, because we were working well, and because Boyd taught me how to do it well, I was able to work the dog into the program and understand what the system is. The issue for, as I said, for onlookers, they just didn't understand what they were looking at. Yeah. You know, they didn't understand because we were making it very uncomfortable for the dog when he wouldn't engage. But as I said, and as I stipulated, the outcome was bite and hold. And it wasn't about biting a sleeve. It was about how to bite, how to hold and how to stay in the bite and how to fight through 
pressure and how to, you know, all the work that we've been doing in, in different aspects of we do it in IPG, do it in PSA, whatever work that you're doing with a dog. But we had to teach this dog how to be victorious through fighting back, like staying there and not running away. Mm-hmm. He learned it. He was good. It's not always the case. Some of those dogs are like Leno. They just discover this is not my job. The majority. Yeah. yeah. Because the majority it's, of dogs shouldn't be that way. That, that's right. In reality, that's kind of not what a dog should be. Like the dogs that we want that do engage, like, yes, of course, it's what we want for the work. Yep. Right. And it's necessary for the work. And people like humans have been using dogs in that way for a really long time. But mostly through history, we've been using dogs against other animals, not against other people. Like dogs really, it's very weird that a dog will, like it's it's unusual that a dog will look at a person and be like, I intend to bite you. And when the pressure comes on, that will make me bite harder. And we know that because it's so fucking hard to find a dog like that. When you want one, like they are not easy to find. Like you're only specific. Of course, there's outliers, but it's only going to be within specific breeds. It's only going to be within specific bloodlines of those breeds. And it's only going to be not even all of them that pan out the way that you think. Because it's, it's usually through an education as well. Yeah, it's such mm. an uncommon thing yep. for a dog to do. And, like, that's not what really what people – the majority of through time, like, people don't want a dog that demolishes someone that breaks into their house. They want a dog that barks and has someone not break into their house. Mm. You know what I mean? Overwhelmingly, people don't want – even people who want a guard dog, people don't actually want a dog that will f- – legit bite someone that breaks into their house because like what a disaster mm. and and how dangerous that is if it's not who you think it will like if the dog dogs make bad decisions all the time like if it's just one of your kids that's yeah come to town and you know climbed in through a window yeah. one night and your dog so, fucking nails them. like you know if we have kids at our place all the time that just open the door unannounced just yep. walk straight in if i had a dog that would like bite someone that broke into the house like that i'd I couldn't do it. He'd mm. have to live in the kennel. It'd be way too dangerous. I yep. couldn't do it, right? And, like, if I had that kind of dog, he would because I I am okay with that in a dog, but that's so rare. Mm. I think sort of relating to puppies and what we're talking about is I think that the hardest part about raising puppies as a trainer, right, so no, it's not your puppy, it's, gonna, it's someone else's that you're a part of, is that their handling is often not good because yes. how could it possibly be? It's their first time, right? Yep. So like, and puppies are squirrely and difficult to handle at the best of times. And the problem is by the time someone gets good at it, it's not a puppy anymore and they're onto an adult dog and now it's a different type of handling and they've got to get good at that. Mm. It's rare, you know, it, the type of person that has multiple dogs and is constantly raising many dogs, they have the the time and the opportunity to get good at handling a, a dog. But mostly the people we work with will never get good at handling a puppy because they only have that one and then 10 years later they have another one, yep. right? And like there's 10 years in between, they're never going to develop a, a really high competence in a skill set when it's 10 years, like it's, you get six months of it and then it's 10 years before the next one. And so that's an issue. And I think as well, like, I think we sometimes forget, especially in the working space, no matter what the work is, whether, you know, it doesn't matter what it is, is very often when people get their, you know, their Ferrari of the, of a dog, they've got the right dog, the right bloodline, all those sorts of things is there's this pressure of getting it done quickly. And it can feel like you've kind of achieved nothing. Like, you know, like there's sessions where people, I see it when people come in and they're, they do a session with me and it goes for 10 minutes max and the dog only bites a couple of things or they bring the dog to work on engagement or whatever and I only throw the ball twice and the dog comes back and then I roll around on the floor with it. Mm. That can be really disheartening to people because they're like, you know, I want to see big progress and it's like it just doesn't go that way. It, like we don't, I don't want to see big progress in a puppy. I just want to see just the dog 
get a little bit more interested in the thing that we're trying to do and we make a tiny little approximation towards what it is that we're trying to achieve. That's all it's I like want to do. watching grass puppy. grow. Exactly. And mm. and it's so infuriating. Like, and you and that's I- That's why, but that's why people don't develop the skill because they're too fucking lazy. Yeah. But there's pressure both ways because yeah. when, when a handler turns up to a decoy and they and you do fuck all because doing hardly anything is the right thing to do. That's true. They're like, hey, where's the rest? And you're like, yeah. no, we did the right amount. Mate, this is the main reason why, and, and I'm glad, like certainly I didn't invent this, Bart is the one that put me onto it and there's more and more people doing it now is that at seminars now it's not so much a like first in best dressed on working spots. It's like you want a working spot, you tell me what what kind of dog you have and I'm going to select the dogs that I can demonstrate. We can actually demonstrate the thing that I'm here to teach mm. rather than just having a bunch of random dogs come in. Because very often the problem is people will go like, oh, well, I've got a working spot. I'm here for have Pat fix my dog. And it's like, no, fixing your dog's a six-week thing. I'm not – like I can barely make a dent in it here mm. today. And so like I can do step one, which is probably just going to be building motivation, right? Because like chances are if you've got a big issue with the dog, you're probably motivating the dog in the wrong direction. So I can talk about that, but I can't – it's very unlikely I can make any drastic changes with your dog. And in doing so, I'm probably actually going to set that dog back. Even if I don't set the dog back, it's going to be a demonstration of the skill set because it's not going to generalize. It's going to be extremely context specific, the, the thing that we're doing in this place with these people while I'm doing it, mm. all those sorts of things. So I think that that's one of the things I'm really happy to see more and more and more seminars that I see being run are people saying like, apply for a working spot and we'll go through and we'll see what's appropriate that is actually appropriate training that we can actually demonstrate and achieve something and actually have people understand that training is incremental and that we don't put on a big show. This isn't a theater where we, where we're going to impress you with my, you know, radical change in the dog. Now, sometimes that's possible, right? Like there are times where you can do that because there's a very specific thing that's causing the problem. But for the most part, training should be boring. It mm. should be very like unimpressive. It should be just like little incremental steps towards the ultimate change. hundred percent. Some of the training sessions are just painful, absolutely painful. It's like watching, as I said before, it's like watching grass grow or paint dry. It is absolutely boring. It's just going out there and the hardest thing about that training session is the setup. Mm. It's the longest and most enduring thing of setting everything up, taking your dog to the area, getting it ready, taking it out, and it's like seconds, minutes, whatever it is, it's a tiny amount of time. But it's setting the ratchet to go forward. Yeah. You know, it's that incremental, that painful incremental. And if you had fast motion camera, it would look amazing. Like you'd be able to see it. It's like watch, when you watch grass grow or clouds moving in fast motion, it's like, oh, wow, that looks amazing. Mm. But it's not like that in real life. In real life, it's painstaking. You're 100% right. There are a lot of people who, even with the handler work, they fail to do the follow-up. They fail to turn up. They fail to do it. And then they expect these great big incremental changes when they do turn up to training. But the whole thing adds to a picture that needs to be better done. And I feel that we addressed it well at the start when you were saying, you know, like there's really nothing out there that is aiding people in this. A conversation I was having with Casey and the group on the the Lone Star Clubhouse oh, yeah. thing the other night, and I was saying, you know, like I really think there's a small group of people that occasionally I get together with and we do a little bit of work with it. I'm, I was kind of thinking I'm going to look back at getting into it. I kind of miss it, you know, like it was fun stuff to do early development work and just have a small group of people that I can – work with and teach them how to do it because I got a lot of work in doing it. I got, mm. you know, like 
10 years solid of working young dogs and fucking stacks of them mm. too. It was pretty much most of the work that I did with ADT in those early days was the first round of people that came in were all the juniors and puppies and it was just getting rags out and having, you know, Boyd running up and down the line telling all the trainers, do it this way, do it that way. We got to experiment a lot. We got to do things that a lot of other groups of people have never had their hand in. They Mm. just don't do it because they never got to do it with dog after dog after dog and see the variations. Another thing that inspired me too was – listening to you talking last week in the conversation we had with Luke and Panos, where you were talking about the difficulties and the challenges that you've had with that bully that you're training. Mm. I've been thinking on that so much because that's been one of my criticisms of people for a long time is that they get very malorientated or very shepherd orientated or whatever, insert whatever dog into that field. And that's all they want to see. That's the only picture they want to see. The best dog, the poser dog, so I can pose with this dog for these reasons. But, and again, it's not having a crack at trainers. It's not having a crack at talented decoys. What it is is having a crack at people who get fixated to think this is the dog, this is the only way with this type of dog. And if that's the sport you're doing and that's how you win, power to you, that's what you need to do. But that doesn't work for a vast majority of people who get shelved. They get mm. benched over shit like that mm. because trainers then start thinking, well, you know, my idols, the people that I go to for help, tell me that's not sexy and I should be pushing them further away. So these dogs get less and less help because people don't like it because it doesn't look so sexy and it's not poser material that can go on Instagram that night. Some of the work, hey, there's some people out there who really need to listen to what I'm going to say next. Don't concentrate on the fucking camera. Concentrate on the dog. <laughs> concentrate on your on the person who's coming there and paying you or the person who's coming there and supporting you. You know, like it's not about you. It's about the big picture of things. I think one of the lucky things for me, and trust me, I would have been a poser if I had my time again. I, I would have. I loved posing back in the day. But we didn't have cameras focusing on us all the time. We just had to get the work done. You weren't thinking about lining up the best shot. You were thinking about doing the work. Mm. The work was the most important thing, not being on an angle where the camera catches you with the best lighting. It's not an attack. I'm not having a go at people for advertising their work. I know you do it. You need to. Trainers need to do it. It's part of what the world has changed. It's just the way it works now. It's the way it works now, but, but. There are too many people who that's more important to them than the work. Yeah, the work makes you great. The work makes you shine. The outcomes that you develop through the skill sets that you attribute is what people need to look at you for and why they should come to you. Not because you're posing to a camera and you're trying to set up the shot. I've seen decoys fucking it up time and time again and the dog's paying for it nobody's much the wiser because they can't see what's going on, but the dog's paying for it because it's not setting the shot up nicely for them. Mm. And that's not good work. That's not what you should be in it for. You're focusing on the wrong angle. The angle should be work first, camera later. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, like it's important to, you know, if you're a business, you've got to film stuff. You have to. Sorts of things, that's but- marketing and it's fair and you should do it. And again, as I said before, you know, I see people do it very well. They're focused on the content that they're developing is around the skill. Mm. The skill is what they're showing people. It's not about, I went through it all before. It's not about all those other lists of things that we went through. Really, it's about developing a beautiful skill set and remembering I shine through my student, not mm. the other way around. Mm. 
something I wanted to bring up, like on training Kai, that bully, and I'm so enjoying training again at the moment. Like I'm really into it. And both my own dogs, I think I touched on it last week, but both my own dogs, I'm doing this conditioning program thing, right? Mm. Just for the fun of it, I'm teaching them both in a way that they both haven't been taught before because it's body awareness kind of stuff. So Valerie was lured. All her behaviors were lured, right? But Remy was totally free-shaped and to the point where he kind of struggles to follow a lure, right? It's over it now. I've put in the work to fix it. But three weeks ago, he wouldn't follow a lure. If you try to lure him, he was like, that's a trap. Like, you don't lure me. You only try and booby trap me with food. It can't be that, right? Because I did that too young. I'll never do it again. Yep. Trying to teach them the same thing, like this foot target thing and body awareness, but I'm making Valerie do it through free shaping because I've never actually taught her to do anything through free shaping. I've done a lot of different stuff with her, like random shit, and she can do all kinds of random stuff, but everything that she actually knows, by the time I got into free shaping, she knew everything already, right? So Mm. like I didn't actually teach her anything beyond like having fun in the shaping games, go around things, jump on things, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Whereas Remy's the opposite, like everything was free shaped. And so I'm luring him in the body awareness stuff and I'm free shaping her. And I've forgotten, it's been a while since I've like free shaped a dog to do like a really tight thing, you know, like, cause I haven't done that in a long time. And there's awkward, just uncomfortable staring at each other. <laughs> She's like, it's this. And I'm like, it's not that, babe. You got to try something else. But without saying that, because if I tell her to do something else, then she'll just randomly experiment with behavior. I want to kick her like thinking. Yep. And, and there's just these like long moments that if anyone was watching, you'd be like, this guy hasn't got a fuck clue because we're just staring at each other for 10 seconds, 15 seconds, like doing nothing. As she's like, no, it's definitely this. You definitely want me this. And her cycling through like, oh, I'll do a spin. I'll do it like sit pretty. I'll roll over. And I'm like, no, I just want you to put your foot on that plank. <laughs> like I just want that one really easy, simple mm. thing. Whereas Remy now, he's like, oh, it's this. And then he keeps trying to do more. Like I've got him locked into the behavior. And now that I've faded the lure and I can tell him to do it, he keeps offering me more things. Like he's like, it can't be this. It can't be this simple. Where's the rest of it? But I think that's what I mean. Like if you were to look at that trait, it's so boring. Mm. It's especially with like Valerie. Yeah, it's not sexy. I'm just staring at her. I'm just staring at her for like 15 seconds, like waiting for her to do something. And then when she does it, like, yeah, that's what I wanted. Here you go, have some food, right? Like it's so unentertaining to watch, but it's quite effective training. Like they're both learning really quickly. We're making progress through the program. Like, but there's nothing exciting to see. No panties will be dropped over training puppies. <laughs> I'm telling you, but nor should it. And, and <laughs> on, on puppies though, like what I I'll say sort of in defense of a lot of, cause I know there'll be a lot of people saying like, Oh, it's fucking hard to work puppies. And it is. It is. That's why people aren't good at it Yeah, because they become complacent to it. Yeah. And I think what people sort of, you know, as I was saying before, when people get their Ferrari dog and it's like, this is the one that's all going to work out for us, they get too technical. And that's what I find myself really often as a decoy saying like, I don't care how this goes. I don't care how this looks. As long as the dog is enjoying it, I can fix any problems that come of this later. Like I want it to go perfectly. I want it to be back teeth. I Mm. want the dog pushing. I want the mechanics of the dog body to be correct yep but more importantly all i really care about is that the dog enjoys a session and wants to do it again because over time i can get the mechanics correct the only thing that matters to me at the end of the session is not that we made progress towards what is the physical outcome but that the dog wants to go again because if he wants to go again i can do it again Mm. and i get another shot and over the next 12 months we'll approximate towards the right thing 
But it's more important to me that every puppy finishes the session being like, fuck yeah, I had an awesome time with that. Like I want to do that again. Now there's varying degrees of that. There's success at the end where we sit there and cuddle and there's dragging the dog out while I'm taunting it with the rag, right? Like there's very degrees what of- What works for the dog. Yeah, well, and, and mm. where the dog's at in training and what all the things are happening. Like that's a spectrum. It's, that's not to say that every session ends in me cuddling a puppy on the floor, but very often it does, yep. right? Like if every, if the puppy does everything well, like, hey, that's it. What's the point? Mm. It's one of the things that, you know, like, you know, I was up at Cole's place recently and they got this incredible dog who is biting, like he's incredible. He, everything's there and not doing no work because we're like, why would you? Things can only go wrong from here. Let him grow up. He's only 10 months old. Let him become a 15-month, 16-month, 18-month-old dog, and then we can start going to the next step. But in the meantime, there's only risk. He bites perfectly. He's super intense in it. Everything is there. Why continue to do the same thing when there's only a chance that it goes wrong, that you can't get any better? Just leave it. Yep. And that's one of the hard things, I think, to convince people to do is just be like, hey, don't do anything. Just, just sit on just that. Just wait. Yeah. Be patient. Patience is mm. the hardest thing with puppies. Just before we close out, because we're close to doing so, another point that I did want to bring up was intensity of trainers with dogs, with young dogs and juveniles as well when they're training. And this came about because I was watching one of the trainers who was learning with you the other day in PSA. No fault of theirs, it's just an experience, but what they were doing was when they were working the dog, they were basically what I call eye-fucking the dog. Yeah, too much. Yeah, too much intensity. Frontal pressure. Yes, staring down on the dog like eyes wide open like dishpans. It wasn't their fault. Like I said, it wasn't your fault, it wasn't their fault, it was just a situation. It happens almost every time I watch new trainers working with dogs because they think I need to look at the dog, I need to watch the work, and they forget about – well, it's not they forget. They haven't learned yet that too much intensity, too much drawing down on the dog can be too intense for the dog. These are just skills that new decoys and new trainers need to learn how to do, not only new and, and uh, up-and-coming decoys but also experienced decoys because I've seen them doing way too much of that as well where they're not using peripheral vision, they're not looking away from the dog, they're not giving the dog relief for doing the work. You might look at the picture through an experience and say, oh, this dog looks like it's having a good time. Experienced people usually look, no, well, that's way too much pressure. You know, like I can see the dog not really easy on this situation. It's like everything that we talk about when we're going through the phases of training. When you get to the proofing phase, as you just said about this other 10-month-old dog that you're looking for or looking at, when you get to the proofing phase in anything, sure, stare at the dog. You know, stare the dog out, you know, yeah. put pressure on the dog because the dog is accustomed to it then. It's it, it's incrementally through life stages and through education being accustomed and socialized to that form of training. It Well, the term I should use is generalized. So by the time the dog gets out there, it goes, give it to me. That's mm. how I know I'm going to be rewarded. If you stare at me, if you put pressure on me, I know my life is going to get better through this because I understand the technique. I know you've coached me that I'm going to win by all this surmountable pressure coming on me, but not as a young dog and a puppy. Mm. At that stage, they're figuring out, do I really want to be in this? Like I'm on the edge, I'm on the cusp, I'm at the threshold. If I keep getting pushed at this point in time, what's it going to mean for me if I'm not so comfortable in this sort of situation? What should I do next? And the doubt will start incrementally creeping into the dog's mind. I remember your conversations with Bart, and I believe that you and I were together when we were traveling home. We were with him most of the time together when I was doing the gold course with you guys. And I think that he said at that point in time is that many a good dog have been ruined by people just not understanding where they are at that point in time. Totally, yeah, yeah. And he's not the first to say that. You know, like if you – again, when we were talking about 
good trainers always talking about technique first, then speed, you know, like multiples of trainers have always said that across multiples of disciplines. But this is one thing that people don't seem to understand, even when they're dealing with young dogs and puppies is that they are pushing for speed when they really, they need to be building technique and Mm. understanding thoroughly what those techniques are and ending the session short. Mm. Well, it sounds like it's raining now. So time to wrap it up. Time to wrap it up. All right. That's it for another episode of the Cameron Paradigm where we bounced around, talked about a million different things. That all tied in. Yep. We did it. I hope you like the show. Uh, (laughs) I hope you (laughs) like, rate, share, and subscribe. But what I really hope is that you join our mailing list. Absolutely. There'll be a link in the show notes and million places you'll find it. Get on the mailing list. We haven't sent a single email to our mailing list yet, but we We will will. at some point in our lives. We will. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. A few bucks a month gets you an extra episode in there as well as live streams and all kinds of stuff. So my presentation at the ICP conference, I have the recording of that now Mm -hmm. and that is going to be in the Patreon end of the month. So that's going to be in there. So you can check that out. As well as, if you want to support the show, you could buy a cool merch. Yep. Get into spring. Thanks buy for all the people cool that stuff. do. It's really cool to go to a seminar or see a speaking event or even something online and you th- see a bunch of people wearing TCP stuff. Yeah, it's, it is. It's amazing yeah. when, when that happens. Yeah. Appreciate you guys. And if it's, you either, getting, it's either TCP or DEFCON. Yeah. <laughs> they do have some cool stuff. <laughs> they do. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is jump into the Facebook discussion group. Just be nice in there. Don't be a dickhead to anyone. Yep. Or if you want to get in touch with us directly, shoot us an email. We are info at thecanonparadigm.com. Goodbye.